from St. Louis Public Radio. This is Politically Speaking. Missouri's 1st Congressional District is one of two that currently have Democratic representation and is almost guaranteed to remain a blue district. With the Democratic nominee likely to win in November, the race for who that nominee will be on August 2nd feels more like a general election than a primary. On this week's episode of Politically Speaking, Democratic State Senator and candidate for the 1st Congressional District Stephen Roberts joins the show to talk about his candidacy, policies like abortion and gun control, as well as why he thinks he'd be a better congressperson than current incumbent Cori Bush. Let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking Podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. We have to talk about things that matter to people. I've tried to bring that same aggressive iconoclast style with me to uh, the United States Senate. I think my district is a model for the state. We put Missourians first. You just kind of have to find the common ground with people. I believe that this district deserves someone who represents their values. After I came back to St. Louis, I started thinking that I could have a bigger role on the change that I wanted to make. Welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, State House and Politics reporter Sarah Kellogg. Joining me is my co-host. He is the political correspondent for St. Louis Public Radio. Jason Rosenbaum. And our guest today, he is the state senator for District 5, and he is running to become the Democratic candidate in the race for Missouri's first congressional district. Steve Roberts. Thank you for joining us on the show. Before we get started, you know, we kind of want to do a little bit of a bio introduction uh, to you. Sure. Yeah, well, you know, we born and raised here in the city of St. Louis, fourth generation. Um, so my family has deep roots to the community here. Uh, I've been serving in the House. For, I served in the House for four years and two years in the Senate. You are running against current incumbent Cori Bush to represent the 1st Congressional District. Why did you decide to run against her? You know, when I was first elected to the Senate, my focus at that time was to serve my full two terms, as you know, were capped at eight years in the state legislature. But I had noticed a continuing pattern of troubling votes and me and other elected leaders feeling that our voices weren't being heard. For example, uh, there was a bipartisan letter that was actually drafted by uh, Congresswoman Ann Wagner that every member of the Missouri congressional delegation signed on to. And this was to keep 15,000 Boeing jobs here in St. Louis County. And Unfortunately, Congresswoman Bush was one of the fo- only only members of the delegation that wouldn't sign it. So, you know, right now, the way politics is the way it is, we're looking for leadership to bring people together. It can't be these situations of, well, if I don't get everything I want, I'm going to vote no. This is Congresswoman Bush's first re-election cycle. Why challenge her now? Why not give her maybe some time to adjust a little further and challenge her in, in two more years instead? Well, we can't wait. I mean, St. Louis is a great place for opportunity and potential. And it was really through the hard work of Senator Roy Blunt, Congressman Lacey Clay, our comptroller, Darlene Green, that we were able to keep the NGA's second headquarters here. It's a $1.7 billion investment in our area. And if we had a congressperson who's saying that they want to defund the Pentagon, and this is a DOD installation, um, we're not going to get those opportunities. We're not going to get those resources. So for me, we cannot let this type of harm continue. So I see this race as fairly straightforward, Senator. Cori Bush did not win the black vote in 2020. I think she got between like 42 and 44%, but then won the white vote. That's if correct. she's able to, if she gets over 50% of the black vote in North St. Louis and North St. Louis County, I think she wins automatically. 
What makes you think that you're the candidate that can prevent that type of thing from happening? Of course. So my district, the 5th Senatorial, is wholly within the city of St. Louis. We've got a large chunk of the city of St. Louis, uh, no the north part as well. And, you know, I've already been endorsed by the majority of the elected officials in North County. So, you know, from Senator Angela Mosley, Marlene Terry, Neil Smith, uh, Marlon Anderson, uh, and others. So, I mean, we've, we've got a great set of endorsement and support from folks of those areas. And, you know, these are areas that, uh, especially in North St. Louis City, I've done very well in. You know, my district, my previous house district, um, the majority of it was in, in um, you know, the predominantly black areas of St. Louis. What are you trying to do to distinguish yourself from the other candidates in this primary? Like, whether you like Cori Bush or not, especially on policy front, you know, she probably is going to have a lot of very energetic supporters. She's going to have support from national groups that are linked with the Justice Democrats. How are you going to be able to compete from a campaign perspective? Well, we've assembled a great team and we just haven't really seen her or her folks in the field. Um, you know, that she's running in a new first congressional district. Um, you know, I'm very confident. Like you said, she won uh, St. Louis City and previously lost in the county. You know, I, I expect to win both the city and the county. So I don't want to turn this podcast into a 30 minute uh, back and forth on redistricting. Like Sarah <laughs> knows that I can get down a rabbit hole. I sure can. <laughs> I've mentioned on other shows just how notable it was that parts of Richmond Heights and Maplewood were taken out of the first and put into the second. And my, I, I looked at how those areas voted in 2020. Those were Cory Bush strongholds. Were those taken out specifically to help someone like you beat her in a Democratic primary? Yeah, so me and the Black Caucus were pretty uniform um, as far as what we wanted the map to look like. The focus was making sure that we kept this a majority-minority district, not just, you know, now, but where we're seeing population trends to keep that, you know, where our folks are moving. Um, so when redistricting is happening 10 years from now. So uh, you may have seen the First Amendment that I, I had filed. Um, I believe that had the, the most minority uh, majority minority representation uh, representative bosley filed a companion version in the house um you know we weren't able to to get everything that we wanted but it was far better than the original hb 2117 that was passed out of the house so you know the black caucus we were all basically uniform as as far as what we wanted the map to look like so you know my role and responsibility in the senate was that you know we kept uh, uh the map in a way that would increase minority representation, but not just now, in the future. So we were all uniform in that position. Yeah, and I've written extensively about this issue. I know how important it is for the first district to remain in a state where a black congressman is, is perennially elected because it has a trickle-down effect to other offices in the city and the county. So I... I even as a white dude, I think that that's like incredibly important. But with the caveat that, yes, Richmond Heights and Maplewood are gentrifying and are getting whiter, there are significant amounts of African-Americans that live in both of those places. So how does that conflict with the principle that you just articulated of trying to make sure the first was as African-American as possible? Well, if you compare the numbers between the House version and what was truly agreed and finally passed, um, on all fronts, we were able to increase minority representation. So for us, it 
came down to the data. I mean, we knew we weren't going to be able to, as we did with our original amendment, basically stay north of 40. Um, you know, that was kind of what we were trying to do in both the House and the Senate. Uh, to find a compromise, we were going to have to take parts that were south in that Webster Groves area. Um, and I mean, I think we, we've met a fair compromise. I mean, you know, you've got uh, large minority populations in Olivet, Creepcore, Maryland Heights. Um, and these are, it's just where the numbers led us. We talked about this really briefly uh, after your announcement. So your announcement that you were running for the first congressional district was met with criticism by some. Many brought up former sexual assault allegations, which was one brought forward by the late Cora Faith Walker. What is your response to those allegations and those who are continuing to bring them up in this campaign? Sure. And what we're seeing is that, unfortunately, this is Cori Bush and her supporters trying to distract from an indefensible voting record. I don't think it's going to work. Um, I think the voters are going to see the truth like they have in my previous three elections. And my just like my colleagues did as well in both the state house and senate who have elected me to leadership roles. Um, I was elected to serve as chairman of the Black Caucus by both men and women. I can only cast one vote for myself, much less 58, and I currently serve in leadership in the Missouri Senate as our caucus whip. So, you know, I think voters are, are going to see the truth and recognize that this is St. Louis politics at its worst. With Walker's accusation, defamation suits were filed by both of you before a settlement was agreed upon. Why come to this agreement at all if you maintain your innocence? Yeah, for me, it was never about money. I wanted the lies to stop. And the most important part of it was for me to be able to continue to tell the truth. Um, and she agreed to those terms and, in fact, signed a letter to the judge where she admitted that the allegations against me were false. So, you know, it was never about money. I wanted to continue to tell the truth and the lies to stop. You appeared on Channel 5 about this topic, and you were quoted saying, quote, the only reason I'm coming forward now because is because Cori Bush and her supporters keep trying to recycle these old stories that were proven to be false to distract from her indefensible voting record. You told us that earlier. Sure. Uh, do you want to elaborate any further on that statement? Oh, again, I mean, you're, you're seeing that. It's St. Louis politics at its worst. It, it's not just Walker that accused you. Uh, Amy Harms accused you of groping her. How do you respond to these other accusations and people who feel like this is a pattern for you? Well, I'd say this was investigated by the police department. Uh, it was investigated by an independent Republican prosecutor. Uh, the FBI is part of a background check for my top secret security clearance. I mean, for some folks, there's nothing I can do or say that will change their opinion. Um, we've, you know, I've released very personal details from surveillance videos to um, statements, um, you know, the witnesses that these organizations had spoken with, everyone came to the same conclusion that I was telling the truth. And I recognize that, you know, it's unfortunate, but it's something that's going to follow me for the rest of my life. Um, but I'm not going to let it hold me back and I'm going to continue to keep moving forward. One, one last question on this, and then we'll go to issues. There was a settlement reached on this, and you have said that it was amounted to basically an insurance settlement. But I, I believe Ms. Harms has pointed out that you signed this with your signature, unless that's a forged signature. Like, can you explain, like, why there was a settlement in this case if you feel like you did nothing wrong? So in this case, the insurance company who was providing the defense basically made a business decision, say, you know, what it would take for us to prove your innocence. It's just easier to um, pay the settlement, pay this amount of money that she wanted. I wanted to take it to trial, but they had what's called a reservation of rights and final say in that. So, you know, unfortunately, I, I wasn't able to.
And as you can see from the documents, I made it very clear that I would not, I didn't do anything wrong and that I would not pay a, you know, be paying. We're going to move on to uh, issue topics. Uh, we are recording this podcast on June uh, 29th, which is a Tuesday, just days after the Supreme Court struck down Roe versus Wade. And as a result, almost all abortions are now illegal in Missouri, with the exception of medical emergencies. What would you do as a congressman to push back against this? Absolutely. The most important thing that we can do right now, and it needs to be a priority of the Democratic Party, is to codify Roe and the right for a woman to choose. So that's something that needs to be done. So in the wake of the decision, there are talks to codify Roe. How doable do you think this is? Or does this change to happen maybe more on a statewide basis? I think it, it depends on the states. I mean, in some of the more bluer states, folks um, still have their abortion protections and rights. Um, you know, I'm very proud that actually in my senatorial district, we have the only Planned Parenthood that still provides abortions in the entire state. So I've been a staunch defender uh, of them and women's rights. But this is one of those things for the state of Missouri it's going to take federal oversight. Um, it is just one of those issues, as you know, we are in a super minority as a Democrat. Uh, the Republicans have super majorities in both the House and Senate. Um, as, as you could see by the statements from our attorney general and the governor, uh, when this ruling came down, um, they are fully against a woman's right to choose. So that's why it needs to be a priority by the federal government. Are there other measures Congress can take kind of in the meantime? And what would those be? You know, there's been some discussion as far as, you know, using federal lands, but I don't think that that's a, a real solution. I mean, it, this needs a legislative approach. We need to pass legislation. You know, I know there was a, the, they recently worked on a gun bill that they were able to get across and out of both chambers. That's a start. But I think the Democratic Party needs to make women's reproductive health a priority. That's how we solve this. There's also been talks of the expansion of the Supreme Court. Is this something that would you would support? You know, I that that that's a tough decision. You know, um, I'm. What kind of box does that open up going forward? You know, when the Democrats, if we end up losing both chambers, the Republicans have the presidency and uh, both chambers. Do they counter and then do the same thing? And does this keep escalating with? the judicial branch continuing to be politicized. So it's it's hard to say at this moment. I think part of the argument is that there's also 13 court districts. And so expanding it to 13 would right. be theoretically. Do you can you would you fall? Would you be more open if it kind of follows that logic? Or are you just worried it kind of opens this Pandora's box? I, I'd be more open to that. You know, I, I'd want to research it further. But, you know, as far as with the justices we had now and trying to pack the court, um, um, I, it gives me a little pause because of the unintended consequences. Why do you feel like you're a stronger advocate for abortion rights than your opponent, Congresswoman Cori Bush? She's been very public and outspoken about her disdain for this decision and has been all over the local and national news about this. Why do you think you would be a better messenger on this issue than her? Well, I'll say Cory does a fantastic job as an activist bringing attention to issues that we're both passionate about. I mean, I remember seeing when she was camping out in the steps of the Capitol, but the work of a representative is done in the building. You know, where is legislation that she could have filed to codify Roe before we're in the situation now of the Supreme Court overturning it? So, you know, the work of a legislator is done 
in the Capitol building, you know, not out in the streets. And so that's what I'll be doing. That's why I've been able to navigate a super Republican majority and get um, some of my some amazing legislation passed at the state level. So if I'm able to take that on the federal scale and hopefully the Democrats, if we still got power in the House, I'd be able to build those same relationships to pass legislation there as well. How realistic, though, is it going to be to codify Roe if the Democrats don't make meaningful gains in the Senate and are able to carve out a filibuster? I know you're running for the House, but like that seems to be the whole ball game here about how many more Democrats can be in the Senate rather than how many Democrats can remain in the House. Right. And you're leading into a, a good question. You know, do we abolish the filibuster? And I would say in limited circumstances, when you're dealing with fundamental rights like the right to vote, women's health care, those things, those might be appropriate situations where the filibuster should not be used to hold up legislation that a majority of Americans support. This district you're running in, it's hugely Democratic. I'm almost positive that people in this district overwhelmingly support abortion rights and are are very upset with the decision to overturn Roe. But there are going to be people that you're going to encounter that probably agree with the decision. Um, and and they won't vote for Democratic candidates that support abortion rights. How do you like reach out to those voters, especially if they decide to get to vote in a Democratic primary because they know that this is tantamount to election and they want to have their voices heard? Right. Well, I, I would understand that. And, you know, I, I think with any elected candidate, you know, there's you're not going to agree with their positions on everything, but you're looking at, all right, is this someone who most aligns with my beliefs, but can also represent me and my voice in the district? Um, if, if someone is pro-life and that that's their issue, I'm very clear on my position, but maybe they agree with me on everything else. And they say, hey, look, this is the person who I want to represent me. So, you know, I, I recognize that I'll, you know, be getting support from, you know, I, I don't expect, and it's not my understanding that everyone's going to be with me 100%. You know, I can make my positions known to the voters and hope that they support me. And know, and this goes to the folks who don't vote for me as well. And, you know, if, when, if I'm fortunate enough to win the congressional seat, but my Senate seat as well, I represent the people who voted for me just as much as I represent the people that didn't. And it's important that me as an elected official listen to both folks. Do you think this decision will end up incentivizing voters who are pro-abortion rights to turn out to the polls in potentially higher numbers than those who were anti-abortion rights? I hope so. I want to move on to the topic of inflation. It's a major issue in this year's election cycle. What would you do as a congressman to combat it? I think there's a few things that it could be done. Um, first, you know, the, the dealing with the pr increasing price of gas. I know the president has talked about this. I'd be supportive of it is creating a uh, freeze of the federal gas tax, say, between now and Labor Day. Um, I think that by keeping our or ports open 24-7, that would help with some of these supply and demand issues. I mean, we really need the federal government to step up um, and, and help folks out in this area. I want to do a follow up on the gas tax holiday. There have been some detractors on both sides who find that to be kind of gimmicky and not really that useful to consumers because it may not actually be like a 16 cent reduction. It may be more like a four or five cent reduction. And then the federal government doesn't have as much money for, for infrastructure and transportation. What do you make of that argument? You know, I, I'm just trying. I think that the best thing that we can do is hold 
these gas companies accountable and make sure we're doing everything we can to lower the cost of gas. So, I mean, I think, and again, I'll make it clear, I'm not an expert in this subject, but I think that a freeze would be a start. I, I couldn't tell you the specifics of how much that would be, but I think it's a starting point. What do you make of the contention from the GOP that President Biden's policies towards energy and the environment are causing gas prices to spike? I, I don't think that's accurate. I mean, environmental concerns are something that's important to me. I think it's important to most folks who live in our country. So to, to say that, you know, renewable energy sources are a, a problem is just not true. When you have voted for the Build Back Better plan, a program that some Republicans, uh, including but also Senator Joe Manchin, argue would have exacerbated inflation. I would have. I, I don't think that that's, that that's true necessarily. But the, the other thing that's most important, I would have voted for the infrastructure legislation, which Cory Bush didn't. You know, you can't be in a position where if you don't get everything you want, you're a no vote. Because I'll tell you what happens in the state legislatures, similar to what happens in federal government as well, when we're having to look to folks on the other side of the aisle to get things that we want done. Those are resources that are then not coming to St. Louis. So we need elected leaders who are willing to work with folks on both sides of the aisle with the priority of bringing resources back to St. Louis City and St. Louis County. Congresswoman Bush has said that she voted against the infrastructure bill because she wanted Build Back Better to be voted on first and get a whole bunch of things related to childcare and, and the environment actually put into law. What do you make of her contention on that? Well, that's a gamble that, you know, the Democrats, as, a, as you know, it was a close vote. You know, what if we were put into a situation where we lost that and the infrastructure package wasn't passed? Um, it's not worth that risk. I mean, there are a lot of great things that the St. Louis city and county are going to receive. It's going to help fix our roads and bridges, help remove uh, and replace lead pipes. I mean, it's something that our labor community have, have been advocating for across the nation and she voted against that you know this all of nothing approach it doesn't work and it's it's not what we need in our elected leadership we need to take a quick break but we'll be right back with state senator and candidate for the first congressional district stephen roberts and we're back on politically speaking with our guest today stephen roberts who is running against cory bush for the democratic nomination for missouri's first congressional district let's get back into it our next topic is on gun control so another recent ruling from the supreme court ruled on gun control striking down a gun permit law in new york what are your thoughts on this ruling and what it means for gun control efforts in the country sure you know it's something that's very personal to me. When I moved back to St. Louis, I served as a prosecutor and I was on our felony armed defender unit. I saw firsthand the devastation that gun violence has caused to St. Louis City and St. Louis County. It's just one of those issues where whether I be at, you know, a small neighborhood meeting, a town hall meeting, a meeting with the Chamber of Commerce and our business community, the number one issue that comes up is crime and gun violence in the city of St. Louis. Um, it's very clear that defunding the police is not the answer. But there are some common sense gun regulations that can be passed at the federal level. And that's what needs to happen to address this. And if you do make it to Congress, what policies around guns would you support? What are some of those ideas? Out the gate, as a bare minimum, you know, red flag laws, making sure that, you know, folks who are a danger to others, there's an ability to get involved and remove weapons from them. Uh, enhanced background checks. And as you know, in the state of Missouri, we don't have those for gun shows, things like that. Um, I think we need to require universal background checks for the purchase of firearms and raising the age from 18 to 21 for folks being able to buy uh, a firearm. You know, if you want to drive a car, you've got to have a license. 
you know, I think if you want to have a, if you want to purchase something that's specifically designed to kill people, you should have some foundational training and a basic background check. I, I think that's reasonable. What do you say to people who feel the process of red flag laws could be abused and disarm people who are not a threat to themselves or others? That's an issue where I would err on the side of caution. You know, if it's someone who maybe their gun was not rightfully taken away, I'm sure we can have an appeals process to look into that. But I'm more worried about the situation where you've got folks calling and saying, hey, this guy is unstable. We think he's going to do something. And our law enforcement's position is, well, we can't do anything about it until something happens. I mean, it's like putting a stop sign up at an intersection after three kids have been run over. Yeah, now, you mentioned your opposition to the, the defund the police movement. And obviously, Congresswoman Cori Bush has been vocally for the idea of taking away money from law enforcement and bringing it to social services. I, I would just ask, though, I, I lived in St. Louis City when they passed a half cent sales tax increase for the police. I now live in St. Louis County, where they also passed a half cent sales tax for public safety. And, and especially in the county, like tens of millions of dollars of additional money went to the police. And it doesn't seem like it had like a discernible impact on crime. Wouldn't that be an argument that just throwing more money toward police isn't really like a, a panacea to reducing crime? Well, it's not just throwing money, but you've got to make sure you're investing in the right types of training and programs. You know, for example, our, our police officers are really expected to be generalists, you know, and, and it be whether it be a mental health situation, you know, a, a robbery, you know, they're expected to respond in a lot of these high tense environments. And we've got to make sure that they have the proper training. I mean, you know, the way you're going to uh, our law enforcement should respond to someone dealing who's having a mental breakdown is, is different than, you know, someone who's, you know, being pulled over for a, a speeding violation. Um, you know, I, I think that more funding, more training, an emphasis on de-escalation, things like that uh, would be useful. And that's something that folks from both sides of the aisle should agree on. But to think that defunding the police, taking away resources, I mean, I'll tell you, at all of these meetings, folks want more police, not less. Now, now back to the specific issue of gun control. Do you think that banning people with certain mental health diagnoses or disabilities from owning or buying a gun would be a 14th Amendment equal protection violation? It's the first time I've been asked that question. I, I don't think so, though. I mean, if you've got someone who, if we're able to lay out a sp specific articulable facts why this person with this condition should not um, have access to a firearm, I mean, I mean, if you've got someone who's bipolar and they're seeing things, I mean, they're a danger to other people if they're possessing a, a firearm. I mean, I think that, you know, there's a way to strike a balance where you're not unfairly depriving folks of their Second Amendment rights, but making sure that, you know, you're protecting people from folks who could be a real danger to society. Maybe I'll, I'll just try to maybe make the question a little bit more understandable. I certainly understand, like, not letting somebody who has a mental health condition with a nexus of violence from owning a gun on an individualized situation. Mm -hmm. What I'm trying to say here is, though, saying that all people with bipolar disorder or autism or even schizophrenia can't buy guns when there's no evidence that they're violent, it seems to me to be a constitutional violation. Like, am I, I'm not an attorney here, you are. So am I totally off base here that that could be 
a problematic policy if it's ever implemented? Well, I mean, for example, felons, they're prohibited from owning or, or possessing firearms. I mean, that's a form of legal discrimination is, you know, when folks are have a felony conviction, you know, you can legally discriminate on them as far as where they live, um, where they work, um, their ability to vote if they're on probation, for example. So you know, to, to blanket for a blanket statement to say if someone has X disability, should they be prohibited? You know, for me, I'd I'd look to the, I'm the medical community. I, I, I don't know if you're saying they've got something where, you know, they can be treated and, um, you know, they're not a threat to society, but I, I, I couldn't comment on that. I would look to medical officials as far as, hey, look, folks with this disorder um, who are bipolar and this category should not own firearms, and here's why, then I'd say, you know what, I, I think that's reasonable. Right now, the U.S. Senate has passed a bipartisan bill around gun control measures. It includes monetary incentives for states to pass red flag laws, more funding for mental health programs, new governmental checks on people under 21 who are trying to buy mm-hmm. a gun. Do you support this bill? And, 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 and do you think it goes far enough? I do support the bill. And, and that's one of the things, you know, with every legislative cycle, we should be moving the ball forward. And that's what this does. Does it have everything we want? No. I don't think that this piece of legislation ends the debate around guns, but we need to keep moving the ball forward. I want to move on to the topic of Ukraine. Do you support continuing to provide military and humanitarian aid to Ukraine? I do. Absolutely. Why? Well, I'll tell you something that um, we've worked on, and I it's something personal to me. When I was in law school, I worked at a clinic in downtown L.A. where we were helping refugees fleeing persecution in our home countries get asylum here in the U.S. These are folks who have been horribly abused, many tortured, and we knew that if they were sent back to their home country, there was a very good chance that they would be put in labor camps or killed. I mean, you've got a situation now where there is a country invading another. Um, The potential to just destabilize that region is going to have implications not just across Europe, but here in the United States as well. I agree with President Zelensky in his in his statements that you know this is not just a fight for Ukraine; it's a fight for democracy, and that's why I was very proud um, for some of the work that I was able to get done this legislative session. There's actually a budget line item that was created in 1998 that provides for um, uh, uh, it, it's for re- re- uh, refugee resettlement. Um, these are grants that can be rewarded by the Department of Social Services. Unfortunately, in the last 23 years, zero dollars have been appropriated to, for this cause. Um, this session, I was able to get a $5 million appropriation. So this is for organizations like the International Institute, Catholic Charities, those groups that are helping refugees resettle here in Missouri. Um, you know, President Biden said we were going to take at least 100,000 refugees from Ukraine. So I think that um, it's important that we support that region and do everything we can here to help refugees. Would you have voted for the $40 billion aid package to Ukraine that Joe Biden signed into law? I would. Why? Again, what's happening in the Ukraine right now, it's an assault on democracy. If Ukraine falls, it's going to create, it's just like what we saw with Crimea and our response then. I think that if the our world partners would have taken a stronger stance at that time, we wouldn't be in the situation that we're in now. So you can't just say that, you know, if you're if you were in a position to help, we need to. What do you make of the argument that focusing on Ukraine detracts from domestic challenges? I, I don't think it's one or the other. I think they're both valid. We need to focus on the issues we've got here 
as well. But, you know, we're operating on a world stage. You know, our government is a very active member of NATO, and there are benefits we receive from that. Um, stability is a key issue. And you're seeing the, the, the problems of it when you've got these corrupt governments that are, you know, abusing their citizens. So I think folks who support democracy everywhere should be supportive of Ukraine. And I, I don't think that it's an either or situation. So moving on to the, I think the most difficult uh, topic in America today and for the last couple hundred years, and, that, and that's race relations. What would you do as congressman to bridge divides between the federal government and black people? And I think this is an especially important question in this race, since this is a majority African-American district. Absolutely. Well, one of the most important things that we can do and the attacks that I keep seeing happening, both at the state and federal level, is on voting rights, trying to make it more difficult for folks from my community to be able to vote. So that is one thing that should be not only, a, I know is not only a priority over the Black Caucus, but should be a priority of the Democratic Caucus as well, ensuring that folks have the fundamental right to vote and making it easily accessible. Do you think that Congress can effectively deal with the systemic racism in this country? Do you think that this is more of a local or state issue? a combination of things? Or is this something that government simply can't solve? And this is more of a internalized hearts and minds of individual people type of thing? Well, it's 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 a combination. And unfortunately, a lot of it deals with political rhetoric. I mean, you're hearing all this talk about critical race theory and how it's saying, you know, you know, one group of folks are, are being taught to feel inferior about themselves and their history. And that just just flat out false. You know, our country has a dark history as far as slavery, and it is important that folks understand the foundation of this country, how America came to be, and to say that, you know, these subjects shouldn't be taught in schools because it makes folks uncomfortable. That that's It should make people uncomfortable, but it's important that folks understand why our country is the way it is. So let's just say you win. And Republicans take over the House and they they really want to go hard on a federal prohibition against schools teaching diversity curriculum, critical race theory, whatever you want to call it. You mentioned like in part of the show, like how you've been successful at working with the other side in a really difficult environment in Jefferson City. What are you going to do as a member of Congress to like work with Republicans to convince them that that's not the right type of policy to pursue? Right. Well, as you know, that that was one of the uh, Republican priorities in the state legislature where they have a supermajority. Um, we're able to defend against that. Hopefully our numbers will be closer at the federal level so we can stop them there as well. Can you kind of provide some specific examples of how you would want to change law enforcement policy on a federal level? Um, you know, mandatory de-escalation, implicit bias training. You know, I, I think uh, police review boards, you know, situations where if you have officers involved in misconduct, you know, we have accountability where there's no question. You know, I mean, for example, um, when you've got prosecutors, you know, whether it's it's perceived or actual, you know, you've got prosecutors when they're investigating um, incidents involving law enforcement officers, I mean, these are the same cases that they're working with um, on an everyday basis. So to make sure that there is public confidence and police accountability, I mean, I think that's something reasonable that could be accomplished. 
just transparency. That's all the time we have. Thank you so much, Senator Roberts, for joining us. Politically Speaking is a product of St. Louis Public Radio, which is part of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. You can access all of our stories at stlpr.org. You can follow me on Twitter at Sarah K. Kellogg. Jason, where can people find you on Twitter? Jay Rosenbaum. And Senator Roberts, this is kind of your your time. Where can (laughs) people find information about your campaign? Yeah, our website's www.robertsforcongress.com. My handle is Roberts at Roberts for STL. So please feel free to look me up and give us a call if there's anything we can do. All right. Until next time, so long.